in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is no co-host. All my co-hosts are gone. I don't know where all my co-hosts are. Uh, Patrick's still, I think, moving in in San Antonio. Paige has other stuff to do. I have Sydney Lee in the room, but she doesn't want to get on the microphone. So, Jennifer, it's just going to be me and you. And I just introduced my guest. How are you doing today, Jennifer? I'm doing great. How are you doing? <sighs> Busy, but good. Now, Jennifer, you and I met at actually one of our happy hours, didn't we? Yes, that's correct. And you start telling me a story. And it was fascinating because I have never, I've seen people go from one industry to another, but I've never seen people move more than once. So let's tell a bit of the story of your background. How did you get, you're not in oil and gas now, but you have a lot of oil and gas experience. Tell the story. How'd you get into all this? Yeah, let me tell you. So basically when I went to Texas A&M and I studied aerospace engineering, the year I graduated in 2003, the Columbia accident happened. So the aerospace industry was a little slow, but I had done an internship with Schlumberger the summer before. So that was my first introduction to oil and gas. So they offered me an opportunity to go to Brazil, become a field engineer and work offshore and do surface testing. So I was like, let's do it. So Jennifer, I got to stop you right there. Il falo Portuguese. Eu falo um pouco de Portuguese. Um, a little bit, yeah. So <laughs> nobody speaks Portuguese ever unless you meet Brazilians. So I, I picked up a little bit of it too doing work in Brazil. All right. So so they made you an offer and you accepted? Yes. Yeah. And so then what happened then? You're in Brazil? Yes, I was in Brazil. I was introduced to the world of offshore. My previous experience with Schlumberger was on land operations. So it's a little bit different and there's a cultural difference. But it was exciting. Everyone there in Brazil was very open they invited me in. They wanted to teach me everything. Had a lot of hands-on experience with hardware, changing out valves. Used a lot of uh, WD-40, which we <laughs> like to call blue magic. <laughs> Did its job well. Yeah, it's so that was during the growth of all those deep salt layers in Brazil. And that's Petrobras at that time was was looking to be a world class operator up there. And they, they had an unbelievably good safety record, especially considering a very short time ago, they didn't have such a great safety record. So it was a, it was a great company for you to cut your teeth in. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it was great. A lot of hands-on exposure. And then Schlumberger, I've known Schlumberger for uh, 25 years. Schlumberger's always had an extremely strong safety culture. It's built into their DNA. Schlumberger was probably one of the first service companies I ever saw that would stop a job while they were working for an operator. Because 20 years ago, you didn't do that, right? You stop your own job, maybe, but you didn't stop a job the operator's doing. So great place to get started. And you said it was a cultural difference. Now, of course, Brazil culture is slightly different than it is here in the U.S. So that had to be an adjustment. Yes, but it wasn't bad. Um, a lot of people spoke English. I uh, actually had a funny experience one time I was offshore, and I was basically the translator between some of the Cajuns on board, huh. going back to chat with my operators that spoke Portuguese. So they were like, Jennifer, can you go figure out what he really means? And I'm like, all right, I'll be right back. So were you speaking Cajun French? 
Or no. English, Cajun English. I was just speaking English. Yeah. They were speaking Cajun English. Yeah, and so then there was Portuguese being involved. That's so. funny. Those, so I'm, I'm actually Cajun myself. Those two cultures are actually much closer together. Very family-oriented. Everything involves alcohol. And dinner is like the seven-hour event that starts at like six in the afternoon, doesn't end until two in the morning. Also very much very religious, very faith-focused people. I, I love Brazilians. All right. So uh, doing off work for Slumberger out in Brazil, doing work for Petrobras, I assumed. And yes. then where did you go? So at that time, around 2004, they started flying the shuttle again. So I returned to Houston and I started working for a NASA contractor supporting shuttle flight missions. Specifically, I was focused on supporting operations for U.S. and Russian spacewalks. Yeah. And so, Jeff, I knew it stopped you there because I've always wanted to ask somebody this question. I've never had the opportunity to do this. You know, a lot of people reach out to me outside of the oil and gas industry and just talk to me about our culture. And the, one of the drivers of the culture in oil and gas is that we're risk adverse. Because if we make a mistake in this industry, people die. There's only one other industry, maybe two that I can think of as the same thing. Aerospace is one, military is the other. So do you see the similarities between that, those type of cultures in oil and gas and aerospace? Or is there different because their business models are different? No, I would say it's, it's similar. Yeah. So aerospace has a risk adverse culture as well. Yes, but there's still, that's why it's very important to assess the risk. Yeah. And so that's where you really shine, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you are able to come out to a job site or even before it's a job site and figure out what are the risks, you can then put processes and tools in place to mitigate those risks. Let's talk a little bit about that. Right. And so right now that's what I am doing. I'm a safety operations engineer. So basically what we do, we assess the task or the operation that a crew member or astronaut is going to perform. Then we identify the hazards and we figure out how we can place effective controls so then they can go ahead and accept the risk or not and move forward with the task. Man, my next question just has to be which one is harder to assess the risk because you have all the different variables in space and space flight, but then you have all the variables in temperature and environmental conditions in oil and gas, and they're, but they're different. They are different, but when I speak to people at NASA and tell them about my experience offshore, I tell them that it's similar because, yes, we have the International Space Station and you have a platform offshore. And I think they're somewhat similar because you have similar systems, you have the human factor, you have different hardware, different operations. And the magic is how does that all work together and does everyone understand the objective? Yeah, so there are a lot of similarities in that respect. I'm also curious, you know, in this show, we don't hold any punches. One of the things that we've seen happen in the last, or I've seen happen in the last 10 years is, and we talked a little bit about stopping the job before we cut the, the mics on, but it used to be that if you stopped the job and you didn't have a good reason for it, you were let go. Now, when you stop the job in oil and gas, even if it was just a gut feeling, you don't have those same repercussions. And the thing I think is so wonderful around that is that drives a different culture. If I know I can stop a job and maybe I made a mistake, but if I wouldn't have stopped the job because I was worried about my my career's future, somebody could have gotten hurt. Is it the same way in, in NASA, the NASA world? Definitely. Yeah. We, When an operation is going on, say during a spacewalk and there is a concern, they want you to speak up. You need to speak up because that's a crew member. That's someone's life. Same thing for offshore. There could be something that happens or something that you see. So it's great to bring it to attention. Of course, you also need to have data behind why are you bringing this up? Why is it a potential risk or hazard? 
Yeah, and sometimes that data is a hunch. I mean, what people don't realize is that hunch or those hairs stand up on the back of your head is really your brain crunching a lot of numbers that you're just not consciously aware of. I see it myself a lot when driving is a lot of times I can predict when somebody's going to pull out in front of me. Now, if you ask me how I could predict that, I don't know. But what it is, my brain's watching somebody's eye movement, head movement, the way they turn the steering wheel, and over years of experience has figured out when you have the right combination, they're going to pull out in front of you. I see that a lot in HSE and oil and gas where there's a lot of people out there with a lot of experience. And in our industry, which used to be your industry, <laughs> which may be your industry again in the future, I'm making a joke. By the way. One of the things I'm worried about is all that experience leaving because it's leaving right now. Is the same thing going on in aerospace? I think that happens everywhere. And a great thing is to really soak in the knowledge and talk to people and get feedback. That's within any industry that was especially offshore. Sometimes you would be on a platform that someone's worked on for 25 years. They have that entire platform and all the wells memorized, and there's so much knowledge there. Same thing, there's a lot of people at NASA that have worked there since the very first shuttle flights. They they can memorize, they can tell you each crew member what happened, oh, this tool, this hardware, this is where they were. So yeah, gaining the knowledge and documenting it, you know, there's different ways to do that. And they tried it develop databases and share that information with the younger generation. Yeah. And so that's, I'm actually, actually, are you like reading my show notes or something over my shoulder? It's actually the next place I wanted to go with this is that for the longest time, the tools that we use to help track uh, HS and metrics and actually make sure jobs perform safe were honestly quit a bit old fashioned. They were either paper-based in oil and gas or somebody back in corporate who has never been offshore bought this tool and it was actually more trouble for the people that are doing the job to use the tool. It was worse so they pencil with it, which then is not good for anybody. Is is NASA ahead of oil and gas as far as the tools they use, or do you think that they're about even there too? I would say they're about even. I would say both industries are using technology as it comes out. They're continuously developing different tools. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've seen a whole bunch on the show. It's actually some really cool stuff. And we had Jack Hinton on from Baker Hughes, his head of uh, HSE over there. And one of the things that uh, he brought up, which I had an inkling of, but I never knew that was fully baked, is there's now protocols and organizations in place in oil and gas so the HSE leaders can share real incident information with each other without worrying about any type of legal liability. So it used to be they would just say, we had a guy slip and he got hurt. He's okay. They wouldn't any more information that, and you can't really do much with that. Now, even among their competitors, so Baker Hughes competes with Halliburton and Slumberjay, they're saying, this is when the incident happened. This is what we think the root cause is. This is our follow-up. This is our mediation. And I think that's wonderful that as an industry, it's like, okay, we're competitors everywhere except we're keeping our people safe. Same way in aerospace? Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. That's Because the bottom line is you want everybody to go home. Whether they're your contractor, your customer, your competitor, whatever, nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. All right, so I'm going to kind of circle back around. So we're talking about aerospace. I wanted to learn a little bit about the differences between two, which sounds like they're actually closer than I thought they would be. I want to bring you back to, to your oil and gas experience. So you were offshore. You're a woman, right, which in the Gulf of Mexico is not very common. I would think in Brazil it's very uncommon. Were there issues with that? In Brazil, no, I never had an issue. That's interesting. It's not what I would have thought. So that's cool. But one of the things that that has to be 
thought through is as more and more women, because we're speaking of Schlumberger, I think the number is 57% all Schlumberger new hires in the U.S. are female. How cool is that, right? Wow. And when Jake and I go speak to all these oil and gas groups within the universities, at least half the audience is female. As women are coming on board in the industry at a faster rate than I've ever seen, you know, most of the, a lot of the techs out there now are female because they just, there's just not enough room for, for having all male components. You know, is there, do, do companies need to think about safety from a different way, knowing that their workforce is now transitioning from all male to, you know, more females and eventually maybe even 50, 50, or my prediction is in 15 years, there's going to be more women in oil and gas in the U S than men, which would be really cool. But do you think that companies need to think forward? Is there, is that a risk of just having more female employees, not an audience? I'm not saying women are any better or worse than men. It's just, there's a difference and it's, you know, regardless of what you think of politically or, or ethically or whatever, when we're worried about people's safety, we have to look at differences in a data scientific way. So I'm just curious your opinion. Do you think companies need to step back and, and look at maybe their JSAs or look at some of the HSE process procedure because now they have more women in their workforce? So from the experience I had for going offshore in the Gulf of Mexico as a woman, and sometimes I was the only woman on the platform, I didn't feel like there needs to be any special call outs for women in particular. I believe that doing simulations or in training is very important regardless of your background. Yeah, let me back you up a little bit. So that's, that's, I agree with you 100% there. So things like uh, FRs. Now you have to have FRs cut for women's bodies. Women's bodies are shaped differently than men's. And if you put a woman in a men's overalls, they may get hurt if there's a flash fire. They may, and this sounds funny. I'm not being funny. They may trip because the, the pants legs are too long, right? So little things like that. Thinking about getting FR clothing, getting boots, getting gloves cut for women. Right. So... For example, when I was going offshore, they had, you know, specific ones with the different logo on it. And I couldn't wear those because <laughs> I'm a little bit smaller than my male coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know why we're laughing, you think of offshore guys in the Gulf of Mexico, think 300 pounds plus. And, and dude, I've been there. I'm right there with you. So I'm, I'm making fun of myself as well. Right. So I and I know now there has been a lot of improvements with the variety of FRs that are available for women. So, yes. But I still was able to find some, and I didn't find it as a constraint. And I think over time, they'll develop, you know, ones with more pockets, areas to put your radio, your gas detector, because there's, you know, different things that you have to keep in mind, depending on which type of operation you're supporting offshore. Yeah, we're seeing it happen now. So a big shout out to all those F to all the uh, PPE companies out there that have taken notice and are making things specifically for women. Thank you, because this way we can keep everybody safe in this industry. So, Jennifer, we're about 13 minutes into it. It's about time for the Red Wing safety tip of the week. Do you have a safety tip for our audience? My safety tip, based off on a personal experience, driving a lot in Houston. Unfortunately, I was in a car accident and my car rolled over. And just a note that you should pay attention to all your possible egress paths in your car because I ended up exiting my vehicle through the moonroof. Yeah, that's scary. So I've, I've actually been in a, a vehicle turnover incident before. And the thing that I do now that I didn't do then is you don't want to keep heavy stuff. I was in a small truck dump in the cab that's not tied down somewhere because it comes a projectile when you're flipping end over end. I'm glad you're okay. And I'm glad that you knew that you had other more than one exit point. I play this game with my son. I've done it for years and he's 13 now. But when we walk into a restaurant or a movie, I go, how many exits? And over the years, he's got to this point now where he's really good. So he'll call me. I'll go, he'll go, Dad, how many exits? I'll go, five. He goes, no. you got a garage door over there. It's actually six. And But the only reason I'm doing that is training him to always look at his exits. Hopefully, it never, he never has to use it, but someday something that simple can make yes. a difference between life or death. 
Yes. Yeah. All right. So I want to get back into your role now. So do you help actually help? Uh, you must uh, help develop standards and procedures because you all have new missions, new tools, new equipment. And so you have to have new standards and procedures. Is there a process to that? Oh, yes, definitely. There's a lot of processes and NASA. Yeah, and so what does that process look like? Let's say y'all brought, bring in a new, a new rover or a new piece of equipment. How do, I don't even know how you can even start to figure out what those risks may be with this new piece of equipment. There's a lot of different tools that we use and different groups. There's a lot of teamwork at NASA to make sure that different areas or different specialties like engineering versus the safety versus human factor groups, everybody ties in and gives their input on the design and different requirement documents especially for the new exploration suits and moving past the moon and Mars. So we have new exploration suits coming out? I didn't even know that. So I'm, I'm guessing these new spacesuits are better, easier uh, to work in, more safe. They're still in development. All that stuff is going on right now. But yes, that was part of the, the push forward. And so is this for just the next generation of us being in, in outer space and being able to function? Yes. Yeah. Different suits for different operations, different surfaces. That's, you know, this is fascinating to me. So I can talk, we talked hydrates earlier and I can talk well control and everything else. I never even thought about different suits for different missions, but it makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. And so then, so then, geez, Jennifer, that means, so the variables are each mission's different. So you got to come up with standards and procedures for that. But then each suit could be different in a different environment. So you're talking about a lot of work to try to think of every, I'm not going to say every possible scenario, but the most likely scenarios and how would you mitigate those risks? How do you figure out where to start? Like, how do you even, you know? That's a good question. <laughs> you don't have an answer? <laughs> no. I mean, basically for the suits that they have, you're trying to make them multifunctional. So in case you had to perform an operation on the lunar surface versus not. So, of course, they're looking at a variety of different techniques from everything from your controlled environment, your oxygen supply. What do you do if you get impacted by a meteor? Different things, different factors. And so when I think about that, I think about all those variables and all those different procedures you have to come up with based upon those variables. Does that then make a feedback loop back into the engineering team so they could design stuff? So this is almost like, an, this is almost like process improvement, right? It's an ongoing process. You never get to the end. Well, it's always a continuous operation for improvements, even for the current spacesuits that they have today. So they're still working on, on finding areas of improvement for the spacesuits, which are what, 50 years old by now? Maybe not that old. 30? Yeah. They are using the same suits from the space shuttle missions. Yes. Wow. wow. But there's been modifications over the years. And then they had to adapt once they stopped flying the shuttle. The crew members had to learn how to do updates on orbit. So bringing this back to oil and gas, you've had your foot firmly in both worlds, which is awesome. I, I, I joked about it, but I'm actually a little bit jealous because you got to do what you're good at in two different worlds, right? Yeah, it's been great. And that has to be a great experience. Are there things that you've learned from aerospace and from NASA that you think would actually benefit the oil and gas industry? I mean, a lot of the things that I've learned, they cross over for both industries as far as how to be, you know, promote what you know, share with others, the safety culture, leadership skills, things like that. Now, I will give NASA, and this, this goes back to my military background, I would give NASA big thumbs up on leadership skills. They do it right. They do it right for a reason, for the same reason that we have good leadership here, is that you, you have to have clear chain of command, especially when something bad happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but NASA does it really well. I, in my previous career, I worked for a company in NASA uh, here in Houston, actually one of my clients. 
And the thing I always thought was cool about it is when somebody barked orders, I mean, it felt like I was just back and stuff got done, right? It just got done. And there's a place for that. And I think mass is a good place for that, but that's a cultural thing. One of the things that I think is really cool about the culture here in oil and gas is it used to be that safety was something that was those driven down from the top. And I'm not going to say driven safety. Is something was preached from the top and you'd have some VP from some big company go out in a rig on a tour and he'd walk out there with no hard hat, no safety glasses, nothing. And then instantly the, the crew on the, on the, on the rig goes, ah, they no buy-in, right? It's not real. And now I'm seeing the opposite happen. I, I got a chance to watch a welder who was welding in a shipyard and they had some executives are taking the tour. And of course you have the yellow lines and if the audience doesn't know what I'm talking about. That's where you can walk safely without the right PPE. And so when the executives stepped outside the yellow lines to look at a piece of equipment and the welder stopped what he was doing, went over there and very nicely, but very firmly said, no, sir, you don't have the right equipment. You have to step back in. And I was like, I was flabbergasted. Like that is what we've needed forever where the frontline people believe in their hearts. That's the right thing to do. And this guy went to some stranger he didn't know and made him step back into the lines that's been a cultural shift that has happened that I think is wonderful. Same way in aerospace where, where has there been a cultural shift or has the culture always been locked down where anybody could spot something was unsafe and then correct it? I would say that everyone's able to speak up and identify things. It's a way of learning. Yeah. So when a mission's happening, no matter what happens, if some, you know, if the guy in the back that's charted with taking notes suddenly sees something that doesn't seem right, he can raise his hand and stop the job. So there's a breakdown of the form of communication. So if one person does see something, it gets passed up because we have one point of contact actually speaking with the astronaut. So you got to go through some chains before the information is passed up. Yeah, that makes sense to have this one person because the astronauts have enough on their plate right now. They don't need to be answering 13 different radio calls. Yeah. So now, so, so, so then once again, but there's another process that as y'all have new tools and, and new systems that come in place, you have to then roll that back into to that constraint of having the one person as communication with the astronauts. Well, everyone in the community is aware before you prep for a spacewalk or an operation, all the procedures are reviewed ahead of time. Everybody gives their concurrence. They give feedback, updates, and it's all rolled in. So the community is aware and all on the same page. They have guidelines that they go by while supporting the mission. So there's no you know, room for error. There's no gray areas there. Everybody knows no. exactly what is, what is expected and what to do. And I'm guessing the same way if something bad happens, there's a whole escalation of, of steps and process and everything to make sure we maintain a tech, uh, human life as easily or as deeply as possible as we, as we can, depending on what's going on. That's correct. Yeah. So here's one I bet there's a difference in, and this is interesting to me. So in the Gulf of Mexico, at least, we have emergency responders stationed, right? It may not be one on every rig, and the guy on the rig may also be your EMT and your mud logger, right? But there's people and tools out there, helicopters, hyperbolic chambers out there to help lessen the impact if there's an incident. What do you do when you're out of space? You can't just fly an EMT up there. So are the, the astronauts cross-trained in all those different disciplines as well? So they have to be self-supporting. Of course. Yeah. But people offshore need to be self-supporting too. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point, right? A good point. It's just one of the differences I know because we had on one of the satellite providers on the show, and he made a point that I never thought of. He goes, Mark, it's not like we can just get a, a repair truck and, and go up there and fix the thing. It doesn't work that way. Like, you know, I never even thought about that. But that's a totally different business driver. So, Jennifer, long-term-wise, I mean, short-term-wise, we're going to be at the next happy hour, right? Yes. <laughs> long-term-wise, you think you maybe ever come back to the oil and gas world? Perhaps the industry's continue to cross over a lot of information and operational controls, identifying hazards, how to improve operations, how to work the people and the hardware together 
it's a it's been interesting to take input from both industries and continue to develop on that. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the other crossovers, like I don't know the medical world, but I know that there's certain parts of heart surgeries that the technologies are used in human heart surgery. Some of that has been cooperated with NASA and, and some other fluid type of handling technology I'll have. And I go, how cool is that? Is some fluid handle technology that NASA invented and perfected heart surgeons now use to save human life? I mean, it's just a great story. So it's cool to see more and more of that crossover because it just makes everything better for everybody else. Right. And there's, you know, different, I have different aha moments sometimes when I'm working on procedures for the astronauts I'm like, oh, we could use this for offshore or different guidelines to go by or different simulations, you know, things that I think about that, you know, could be beneficial for different people. So if you ever run across stuff like that and you're trying to figure out how to get it to oil and gas, I'm, and I'm being serious here, reach back out to me. We'll, we'll get you back on the show or we'll get your process, your procedure on the show, and we can broadcast it to our oil and gas hs and audience because – Darn it, Jennifer, if we can help save one Band-Aid cut or, or one broken arm or one finger or whatever, because you mentioned something show, we want to do that sort of stuff. Exactly. All right. So it's been great having you on the show. If people wanted to learn, and we didn't even mention your company. I'm sorry. So you're working for Aerodyne? Yes, Aerodyne Industries. And if people want to learn more about Aerodyne Industries, where should they go? They can go to the website. We'll put a link in the show notes because Jennifer doesn't know off the top of her head. Neither do I. So people just go to the show notes and just click on it. Don't feel bad. This is a true story. It's Steve Ritter's going to have a conniption fit. But we had Exxon on our show and asked him where should they go. And he didn't know ExxonMobil's website. So you're in good company. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. I just thought it was too funny to let that go. If people wanted to learn more about you, I'm guessing LinkedIn? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll put a link also to Jennifer's LinkedIn uh, page so you can go check her out. Jennifer, it's been awesome having you on the show. Before you get off, because you mentioned this, you see that bag right there? That is the Red Wing Offshore bag. It has become a cult item. It's in high demand. The only way you can win one is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there, and we give away one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official sites for rules and details. And then you heard me talk about the happy hour. Last Tuesday of every month here in Houston, we do what we call a super happy hour. We always have a spotlight on something cool, a great food, great alcohol. A big shout-out to Carbock for for becoming our beer sponsor. We're getting ready to have a food sponsor come on board. If you're looking to sponsor this type of event, it's dirt cheap. I think it's $455. Unfortunately, here in Houston, we're sponsored through all of 2018 and beginning of 2019, but still We'll put Julie's address in there. If you want to sponsor one of our happy hours and get in front of this new younger workforce, we'll be happy to bring you on board. The other thing is if you're in a city in the U.S. that has oil, so if you're in Lafayette, Louisiana, if you're in New Orleans, if you're in Denver, if you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you'd like us to replicate this happy hour in your location, your city, we're starting to do that. Reach out to me. I'll be happy to share the details. And then Patrick wasn't able to make it, so I'm not going to make fun of him. But if you want me or Patrick to come speak at your event, whatever, reach out. We'll share those details as well. And then if you want to learn about all these oil and gas events we're always talking about, I have a uh, newsletter. It goes out once a month. It's free. We take all the oil and gas events, put it in one place, stick in your inbox, and never spam you. We'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. All right. Enough said. Jennifer, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to coming back and uh, visit with you later. I love this synergy between what most people would say are two industries that aren't close together. And I think culturally and as far as risk adversion, I think they're very close together. So thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thanks. Yeah, so folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com.
connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. Jennifer, what's the craziest thing you've seen in the field? It wasn't crazy. What would you call it? Funny? Ironic. Okay. So Jennifer, what's the most ironic thing you've seen in the field? So when I first started working in oil and gas, doing land operations, South Texas supporting Eagleford, we actually had a hydrate. And if our audience doesn't know what a hydrate is, what is it? It's like a big ice cube. Yeah, it's frozen hydrocarbons. <laughs> and it's somewhat common offshore, but it's not common in West Texas. No, it's not. But it was around January timeframe. It had gotten pretty chilly the day or two before. We had come back on the well to rig up for a well intervention job. And the guys called me and they're like, we have some issues. And I'm like, what's your issue? Uh, I don't know. So, of course, I went to consult a senior engineer. And I said, what do you think could be the problem? He's like, and we started thinking about the weather, just starting to talk about different things, environmental, situational awareness kind of things. And he's like, oh, my gosh, it may be a hydrate. Sure enough. It was. That's funny. So he didn't have the experience. He didn't think in his head there could be a hydrocarbon ice cube down the hole. No, our guys in the field, you know, it was hot. It's West it's Texas. It's always yeah. hot. So they were just like, no way. Yeah, that's a good one. Sure enough. Yeah. Right. So never be surprised what yeah. you may encounter.